0: Good morning, happy new year. Hey, just before we dig in, let me give you an update on what God did in and through our community in the month of December. For those who've been around, you know that we have a new partnership that was forged in December with Compassion International and that we together as a community set a rather outrageous goal uh, to raise $750,000 in the month of December. Our That's more than double, almost two and a half X, our normal operating budget for a month's giving. And that did prove to be an outrageous goal. We didn't quite hit $750,000, but we got really close. Uh, And I am just amazed by God's generosity in and through this family. Uh, In the month of December alone, Seven Mile Road gave just right shy of $670,000. Uh, including several hundred thousand in the last 48 hours. So you really, you really have a flair for the dramatic seven-mile road. Um, a beautiful move of God that's going to profoundly impact the lives of several hundred children in this single community in Accra, Ghana. Uh, and we're really excited about the ways that that community, with all of those children, is going to continue to be knit together with our community as we begin to exchange letters and pray for and continue to care for them. And so thank you for your generosity and for your prayers and for all of the ongoing care that's going to be provided for those children. We're really excited for what God's doing there. So with that being said, I'm going to pray and we're going to dig into these scriptures together. Would you please join me as I pray? Our Father, you are alive, holy, eternal, totally other And you speak with authority. We thank you that by your spirit you have inspired and preserved this word that is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and building us up. That it will, in fact, if we will yield to it, if we will tremble at its reading and apply it to our hearts and our lives, it will mature us. Make us complete and prepared for every good work. That you will be a God that transforms your people. And for that, I'm grateful. I'm asking that in these moments with this word open, that you would speak with power to our hearts and that today and in the coming weeks, as we explore what the nature of revival looks like and what it looks like for us to be a people revived by the power of your presence, that you would do that very work in our midst, that you would breathe fresh life on us. Come and move. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're starting 2024 with a four-week series on revival. It will be taken from the latter chapters of the book of Isaiah as we explore what does it look like for the presence and the power of God <clears throat> to breathe life on a people and in a community in a pointed way. I'm leaning heavily on a resource by a man named Ray Ortland. He wrote a commentary in the book of Isaiah that I have found to be quite compelling. And he is the one that kind of turned me onto this idea that in the third section of the book of Isaiah, it really is a pattern or a pathway for revival for the people of God. And so we're not going to preach methodically all 12 of those chapters, but there will be four messages taken from that section of Isaiah and leaning heavily on this particular resource, Ray Ortland's commentary on Isaiah. And we're going to see how revival is traced through those chapters together to start 2024. And I think it's helpful to to allow uh, Ortland from this resource to give us just a basic definition of revival as he's articulating it and as we are exploring it. He says this, True revival is the wind of the Holy Spirit blowing over a community. It is a season in the life of the church when God causes the normal ministry of the gospel to surge forward with extraordinary spiritual power. It's not foolish hysterics. It's God being overwhelmingly real to us. It is a foretaste of the future glory that we await He goes on to say that J.I. Packer, early in his ministry, said, do not neglect the revival aspect of your ministry. This idea that if Jesus has taught us to pray... Would your glory come on earth as it is in heaven? We want your presence and your power, your kingdom to come. That if we're going to pray that way, we need to be the sorts of people that continue and regularly cultivate an expectation and anticipation that there are moments and seasons where the presence and the power of God will move in our midst. Now, there's a few important notes to make revival is not going to be calendared, it cannot be managed, it will not be manipulated. The presence of God is not subject to an equation or to us kind of twisting his arm into something. That's not what we're doing. What we're doing is we're committing together in this season to be the sorts of people that say, God, you're invited. We welcome you. We hunger for you. We're going to pray for you to come and move with this recognition that if he does, it's dangerous territory. Like, this is an enter at your own risk because the moments where the presence and the power of God surges in a community, it means that things are exposed. Things are changed. Places where we've been able to hide and pretend we are no longer, that where God actually answers the sorts of prayers that you are going to be invited to pray. The places where texts like this become real in our midst, where God is overwhelmingly real to a people. Things can never be the same. And so we're exploring what it looks like. We're praying that it might happen in our midst. And you're invited to enter with full awareness that we do so at our own risk. Things can never be the same where this is true. The way that this is going to work for us is we're going to preach through this for four weeks. And then as we have created a rhythm in the life of our community, in the month of February, we will be engaging in a month-long season of prayer and fasting, and that will be in conjunction with churches from all over the city. Uh, There are dozens, potentially even over 100 churches that will be participating in that season of fasting and prayer. You will be getting daily devotionals in the month of February written by leaders from churches all across the city that are all together sharing in the season of hungering and saying, God, come and move. I'm really excited that these couple of months are going to be how together we're starting our year as a family. So this morning, Isaiah 57, verses 14 through 21, a first and crucial step on the way to being a revival-ready community, is that we have to be low. Humility is the price of entry, the prerequisite. And so the way that we're going to think about that together this morning is this. We're going to explore this reality that the Holy One revives rubble. So do not resist being torn down. The Holy One revives. He he brings life and structure and vitality out of that which is crumbled, which is weak, which is melted in His hands, which has been reduced to dust. That's where revival works and operates. And so the invitation is this, do not resist being torn down. Let's see what this means together from Isaiah 57, verses 14 through 21. First, the invitation, the first must for us is this, that we have to recognize the otherness of God. He is the Holy One. This in verse 14 and 15a says, it says, And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, and remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, Who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and the holy place. We have to recognize who it is that's speaking in this text as these chapters begin to to lay out for us what revival looks like. We've got to pay attention to who's speaking and who's setting the table. The one who is speaking is in a class by himself a class of one that is shared with no other. He is high and exalted, and he is eternal. And for that reason, he is holy. Holy means other or different. There's no one like you. You are totally set apart. And the reason that he is is because he's high, he's exalted, he's eternal. Nobody fulfills those categories perfectly like God. He is holy. There's no one like him. This is true throughout the scriptures. We could turn lots of places to see it. We see it in a spot like 1 Samuel 2 in verse 2. It says, There is none like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Or again in Exodus 15 in verse 11, it says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, and doing Wonders. Or again in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16 we read this Who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion amen This is the God who is surrounded by the angelic host that calls holy, holy, holy all the live long day. They cannot stop because when they try to approach him, they have to guard their eyes because it's unapproachable light. He is in a category of his own, high and exalted, eternal and glorious, doing deeds that no one else can match. And so they say other this is true earlier in the book of Isaiah in the vision that he had. It's true in the book of Revelation that the angels sing, holy, holy, holy. This God who is speaking is in a class by himself. We have to start by paying attention to who we're dealing with. I remember when I was 10 years old, my dad had a business trip to Boston. He was going with my mom and they were gonna get to stay in this cool hotel in downtown Boston and they decided to take their youngest son. I got to go with them. And so it was this really exciting time. We were checking in. My dad was going to a meeting, and my mom gave me permission to go upstairs to the indoor pool, which you know when you're 10 is the coolest thing. You'd stay at the hotel, swim at the pool. So I was going in the elevator upstairs by myself to the pool, and this guy that was 6'10 and had a thick German accent got into the elevator, and we were talking and we started laughing. He was asking stories about where I was from and how I ended up there. And We got off on the same floor and walked together, and there was another guy that had been in the elevator kind of trailing along behind us, and this guy was like, all right, buddy, well, I'll see you later, and he goes off and walks, and the guy standing next to me is like, how cool. I can't believe you connected with him like that. That's amazing, and I was like, what do you mean? He's like, that's left shrimp. That's the... That's the all-star guard, the first ever European all-star in the NBA. He plays for the Indiana Pacers. They're staying here because they're playing the Celtics right now in the playoffs. The Pacers are here. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Me and old Detlef are hanging out? I had no idea. And I was so undone that I spent this time with him. I didn't know. I didn't get his autograph. I didn't, you know, this 10-year-old was like melting under the fact that I had no idea who I was with. And uh, in many ways think as we enter these chapters, there's this potential of like rushing past the fact of like, no, 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 slow down and pay attention to who's speaking. If, if, you, if you don't become blind to the fact that you're standing next to something that is so far greater than anybody that's that's notable in our society, anybody that we would be impressed by if we were close to, the Holy One is speaking and he's about to to let us in on two very stunning and surprising secrets, mysterious realities that if we lay hold of them, our whole existence will be transformed. We don't want to miss the fact that the Holy One is speaking and he's about to reveal to us the price for entry into experiencing revival and the power of his presence. You see, we have to recognize the otherness of God. This is the Holy One that is speaking. And then secondly, we have to be stunned. We have to be stunned by his total commitment to reviving rubble. And we're gonna see this in his revelation of two very surprising secrets. Stunning revelations, okay? Stunning surprise number one comes in verse 15, and it's this. He dwells with the lowly. He lives and inhabits and draws near to the lowly. Look at verse 15 with me. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. That makes sense. What he says is, I'm in a class by myself. Nobody can be with me fully. I dwell in the high and the holy place. That's where I live. And also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is the biggest twist. We are coming into the presence of the Holy One who is unapproachable, lives in unapproachable light, majestic and glorious in all of his ways, and he says, I dwell in the high and exalted place, to which the honest response is, well, that's not available to me. When we consider who we're dealing with and where he, he dwells, we go, well, gosh, I don't know that I'll ever dwell with him. He dwells in the high and the holy place. He goes, and also, let me let you in on a little secret. I also dwell with the contrite and the lowly of spirit. The word for contrite literally means powder or dust. It's like he's saying, I'm with the pulverized. I'm with those that have been reduced to rubble, the weak and the needy. This is where I live. I live in the high and the holy place and I live there to which the honest reader should say, well, this path is not available to me. I cannot go to the one who lives in an unapproachable light, who has never been seen and will never be seen. But listen, the path of the pulverized is open to any that's willing to go down it. He says, to the contrite and lowly, there you will find me. This is not a false humility. This isn't a pretend humility. This is the sort of humility like we read about, for instance, in Martin Luther's journey, the great reformer, and the years leading up to the Reformation, and the power and the beauty of the gospel dawning on his soul, he was trying so hard to accomplish all for righteousness' sake. He would confess his sin for hours with exactitude, thinking if I can get deep enough and I can be absolved as I sit in confession, as I try to fulfill all of the claims and the the demands of the law, then I'll finally be free. It's been told in his biography many times over, it's been captured in film, maybe you've seen some of this or read some of this, but Luther was taken to the end of himself. He was pulverized under the weight of the law and came to the recognition, I cannot do this by my own strength. You see, it's the sort of humility that is worked by recognizing the limitations of our frame. None of us is killing it. And we've got to stop pretending like we are. You're not. And I'm not. We are barely hanging on. And we need the kindness and the grace of God to hold us together. What it's saying is, those who are willing to tell the truth, to be contrite and lowly, to come undone in the hands of God, He says, these are the people with whom I can dwell, and the purpose for his dwelling with people like this is repeated twofold. He makes it plain by emphasizing. He repeats it at the end of that verse. Did you hear it at the end of verse 15? To revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. To revive means to breathe life into, to cause to live, and to live fully. It's like It's like being trained as a lifeguard. You know, a lifeguard is trained to, as they're surveying the spot, if they're out on the ocean side or at the pool, watching all that are splashing about, they're looking for the one that is very clearly helpless. The one who has that look on their face of desperation or fear, the recognition that I no longer have the strength to keep my head above the waterline, the lifeguard is trained to look for that one. And they plunge in and they grab and they're trained to resuscitate with breath from the outside that forces its way in so that this one can live. You see, revival, revival is life coming from the outside in to the one that can't make it any longer. Revival requires rubble. You see, God is totally committed to reviving or rebuilding what has been reduced to to pebbles, to ash, to dust. You see, he's coming to revive or to bring life in, but then there's this second stunning surprise. It's not just that he dwells with the lowly. It is that. But in the verses that follow, as he continues to show his commitment to rebuilding the rubble of our lives, I need you to see the second stunning surprise in verses 16 to 19. It's this, that he is committed to healing and leading and fully restoring those who just keep backsliding. He is committed to pulverized backsliders. That's a surprise. I don't know about you, but like, the holy one who lives in a category by himself is so tender and so patient. He says, I see all of the ways you keep going back. And like a lifeguard, I plunge in for that one. See, I'm coming to bring life there. Hear it with me in verses 16 to 19. Hear the surprise in these verses. He says, I will not contend forever nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me, the breath of life that I made. He's saying, if I just continued to discipline for all of your missteps, you would crumble under the weight of it. So I will discipline, but not forever. He says, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face. I was angry. But he just kept on backsliding in the way of his own heart, I have seen his ways. And when I just read that slowly and I would say, okay, God is a God of discipline. He's going to call sin to account. And he says, and so I've called you to account. And listen, you just keep backsliding and I see it. There's part of me that thinks the next phrase ought to be, and therefore I'm going to wash my hands of you. That feels like the natural progression. You're the holy one. You're high and exalted. You live in unapproachable light. And what you see in me is that even when you're disciplining me, even when you're calling me back to yourself, I keep running away. And therefore, you're going to wash your hands of me. That's not what it says. Do you see it? I have seen his ways. But... I will heal him. I will lead him. I will restore comfort to him and his his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord. I will heal him. There's a reason the angels look at him and go, who is like you? Like, we don't know what else to say except that you are other. The one who is perfect in his pursuit his people says, you just keep denying me. You keep treating me like I'm light and unimportant. And I see it. And I will heal you. kindness. Heal means like to stitch, to like lovingly knit you back together. And when it says lead you, it could also mean carry you. Like it's like he finds you in your your wallowingness, your weakness, your embarrassment, and your shame. And he goes, oh, here we are again. I can handle this. And he just starts knitting and caring and restoring for the purpose of comfort and wholeness. You see, the stunning second surprise is that revival is a miraculous work for pulverized backsliders. I hope that sounds like good news to you. It certainly does to me because I qualify. If revival is available to the ones that have mastered prayer, I don't qualify. If it's to the ones whose discipline have commended them to God so that he will finally be good to them, I don't qualify. If it's to those who have remained really faithful and urgent in their evangelistic efforts, I don't qualify. But if it's for those that have been pulverized by their sin and weakness, what they have done and what others have done to them, and they're willing to admit it, they qualify. They're revival ready. Honestly admitting That we are in need is all that's required for entry. A revival ready community is one that's saying we can't do it. We can't usher the presence of God into our lives. We can't manage it all. We can't manipulate him. We can't walk around floating above the fray. We feel the weight of it. And in fact, we're constantly contributing to it. He finds us there all over again. And to that, he says, I can do something with this if you'll admit it to me. If you will be humble before me. And so my question at the start of a new year is this. Where have you grown cold? Not necessarily because you intended it. Not because it's malicious, but it's in us. This sense of our affections grow cold and we begin to draft off of the old things with God. We look back on some other season and think, oh yeah, I was really alive to him then, but life just has a way of working it out of us. We quickly go back to our flesh and our own strength, trying to hold it all together together. Where have you gone back to old patterns? The shame that's nipping at your heels, the nervousness that if somebody knew I was thinking in this way or speaking in this way or acting in this way. Where have you quit loving the things that God loves in the ways that you did in those early days? Like a heart that melts with compassion for those that are lost, for the impoverished, for the heartbroken, Life's just gotten busy enough that you're running hard enough to manage your own path that maybe there's not this egregious sin that you're hiding, but you've quit stepping out in faith and in boldness in what God is doing, and you're in sin against fulfilling the commandments of all that he's calling you to. There's this recognition that if we would just pause and take inventory, what we would recognize together is that we, when we tell our story honestly, our rubble. And we need the rebuilding hand of God to work in our midst. And if we together would admit it, ooh, we're beginning to become revival ready. Revival is the breathing in of life from the outside. If you have it all together, there is no revival to be had. And as long as we keep pretending, we will resist revival. You see, this is the last note. If we recognize the Holy One, and we recognize that He is committed to reviving the rubble, then listen, stop resisting being torn down. Or maybe, more accurately, resist admitting that you've already been torn down. We do not need to resist this sort of work. This is the work of the wicked in verse 20 and 21. Look, it says this, the wicked are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. What is interesting is that by the conclusion, I'm thinking he's making a delineation between the wicked and those that are being revived. And I think, well, that distinction must be between those who do the bad things and those who do the good things but what he's already established is that those are being revived are pulverized backsliders he's not saying some have killed it and some are wicked what he's saying is some will admit it and some are striving with all of their might to convince themselves that they can fix it that's the distinction he's drawing he says they churn like the sea, just making noise and casting up mire and dirt. In all of their energy, they're trying to manage the rubble. And he's going, quit managing it. It can't be managed. It has to be miraculously revived. We, we see it earlier in the chapter in verses 8 through 10. He explains how the wicked cast up this mire, how they try to manage it. It says this, Behind the door and the doorpost, you have set up your memorial. He means that they've, they've engaged in idolatry in the secret place. He says, for deserting me, you've uncovered your bed. You've gone up to it. You've made it wide. You've made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed and you have looked on nakedness you've journeyed to the king with oil and you've multiplied your perfumes and you've sent your envoys far off and you've sent even down to Sheol. So he's saying, you've gone everywhere trying to experience all that the world has to offer. And he says, and you were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it's hopeless. You found new life for your strength and you were not faint. Do you hear it? He says, you've searched everywhere and it wore you out, but you wouldn't admit it. You wouldn't say, "I'm exhausted, and this isn't working." You're like the tossing of the sea, just dragging up mire and dirt. Listen, friends. Stop resisting. Being rubble. Don't resist it. From dust you have come, and to dust you will return. You're human. Can we admit that together? We're human. Needy, broken human beings. And we don't have to pretend to be more. And in fact, when we quit pretending to be more, we're ready for revival. The presence of God flows in there. Where wearied, don't just press harder. Wave the white flag and admit that you're powder. You see, he's not, he's not waiting for you to manage it all. He's just waiting for you to admit your need, to call uncle, to say, I can't do it. And it's into this space where we ask, what does that look like, and how do I have the power to do it? Because I don't know about you. But when confronted with a message like this, I feel this like sinking thing inside of me going, but can I maintain some semblance of control and power and authority? Can I maintain my reputation and my respect? Can I just cling to that in the secret place while kind of nodding in agreement? And for us to see the way clearly and be empowered to go on that way, we need to see the Lord Jesus fulfilling this message for us. He was holy surrounded by angelic praise for all of eternity. Yet he embraced lowliness. What does it say about God? That he dwells in the high and exalted place and with the lowly. And what we see is that Jesus in and of himself was holy for all of eternity, but he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto. And he freely let go of it and he went to the low place. And in the low place, he was pulverized. He was reduced to rubble. But listen, what God promises in this text is that he will be near to the lowly and that those will experience peace. But Jesus, in the moment of being pulverized, did not experience the presence of God or the peace of God. God turned his face away and there was no peace for him. And the reason? The reason was that so, in that, in his resurrected life and power, what we would have in his hands is healing for the backslider. That he would say, You deserve no peace. You deserve no presence of God. And I paid that price so that I could say to the pulverized backslider, I will stitch you together, and I will carry you. The Lord Jesus paid the price so that we don't have to. He has showed us what it looks like to lay our lives down, and then he has called us to the same. He said, stop clinging to your life. If you lose it, you will finally find it. In your crucifixion, you will taste resurrection power. Come with me. Pick up your cross and come with me. The people that are ready and willing to admit that they are rubble, are revival ready. Seven Mile Road. Will you admit it? Can we together... Go on the path towards being revival ready and it starts in a very low place, the place of being contrite and lowly to embracing humility in its fullest sense. This is the path of preparation to reveal the power and the life and the breath of God that we are begging him for in this coming year. The Holy One is profoundly committed to reviving rubble. Please, Don't resist being torn down. Let me pray for us. King Jesus, thank you for journeying to the lowest places, bringing life dignity and healing and your resurrection power. You are leading us into joy and fullness. You don't leave us as rubble. You don't leave us undone as powder. You bring resurrection, glory, and life coursing through from the outside in. It's not ours, but it's yours. You create the fruit of our lips. It's yours working through us. We want to be the sort of people alive to that fully. I pray that for my brothers and sisters. I pray for those whose affections have grown cold, for those that feel like they are far from you, for those that feel like they're just engaging in a religious game, for all of us, God, who have resisted you. Would you breathe fresh life into us in this season? Revive us again, oh God. We need you. We are ready and willing for you to come and to change everything. King Jesus, we bless you and we thank you that it's your death, your burial, and your resurrection that makes new, rich, abundant life possible. Would you come work that in us? It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.